With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone. I hope that you're all doing well. October might be over, but that doesn't mean that the scary stories have to come to an end. Let's get into it as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. There's a secret club that hunts down superheroes. Written by Kyle Harrison. In the near future, the world has changed dramatically due to a global mutation that came to be called the Miracle. In the aftermath, powerful companies have found a way to harness the mutagen and create biological weapons within children. They now continue to recruit children to turn them into monsters, but a select few are fighting back. They are known as the Prometheus Club. Jack's Story The air is still and the roads are empty. Clouds dot the sky as a gentle night breeze makes the town of Carrier's Ridge almost feel serene. In the distance, my school bus gently creeps down the road and I hit my flashers to alert the first house that I'm approaching. My eyes constantly dart around the roads to look for signs of trouble. Everything is going according to plan so far, but I know how easily it can all fall apart. I park the bus in front of the house and wait for any signs of life. The request is said to only wait two minutes and no more. I can't dare to threaten the lives of my other passengers. In the bus at the moment, there are probably a dozen people trying to get out of this town. This bus could be their salvation or their end. Finally, lights flicker on and I see two people rushing with large backpacks towards the bus. I'm careful not to open the door until they're almost there. I don't want to risk anyone else getting on board. This is a planned escape. As long as we stick to that plan, everything will be fine, I tell myself. As soon as they are on, I close the door back, hit the air brakes, and pull off to get to the next stop. Everyone on the bus has become more anxious as time crawls by. We have been lucky so far, but I know that our luck could run out at any second. The next stop is three blocks over and I set my timer. All of the passengers look for a new survivor to join us, but it doesn't happen. Someone urges me to drive off. I'm about to comply with that request when a shadow goes across the road. I start to drive, hoping that I was only seeing things, but unfortunately I wasn't. A few seconds up the road, we see a child in the middle of the street. Immediately, everybody on the bus is shouting orders. My hands are sweaty as I try to figure out what to do but that decision was taken from me seconds later. The child turns towards the bus and I see nothing but pure malice in their sunken eyes. They raise their left hand outstretched towards the bus and I felt my heart stop. The metal frame of the bus lurches forward and groans and everyone grabs onto their seats as the bus slowly levitates. 
I try desperately to shift gears or drive, but it's pointless. We are putty in the hands of this psychopathic child. We are probably 20 feet in the air, dangling on nothing. A few people scramble to the door and push it open to jump out. The rest of us don't get that luxury. The child twists their wrists and makes the motion of throwing a ball, and the bus is hurtled across the ground like a toy. Crashing metal and broken glass shatter our eardrums, as I see all of my remaining passengers become tossed around the interior of the bus like ragdolls. Finally, we're upside down, slammed against a building, and I feel the heat of fire from the engine as the bus alarm screams in response to the attack. People are trying to escape on foot, but that it's just a death wish. The barefoot child uses their telepathic powers to toss them around or choke them with ease. I patiently hang upside down for a few moments longer, my heart pounding in my ears as I realize that they could also kill me with a simple twist of their hand. Finally, I unbuckled and hit the roof of the bus, a glass scratching my skin as I crawl to the opposite direction. The fire and smoke from the bus provide cover for a moment as I move to the closest house, but it isn't good enough. The child finds me, flipping me over with their mind powers and slamming me against the house as they prepare to kill me, choking my air from my lungs. I don't think I'm ready to die, but they don't care. And then unexpected rescue comes in the form of a helicopter spotlight. Attention adult civilian, you are in violation of curfew ordinances. Stand down. The child sees the coming black helicopter and runs off into the night as I gasp for air. A moment later, armed men push me down to the grass and then escort me to the helicopter. I am still gasping for breath as we leave the scene of the chaotic neighborhood. My rescuer is a man in a suit with a beard. He doesn't say a word for a long moment until I regain my strength. And do you know who we are? He finally asked. Of course I do, you're with Pantheon, right? The idiots that created these godlike kids, I said. The older man twisted a smile. And if I'm not mistaken, we're the idiots that saved your life, the man said. My mouth felt dry, and they were looking to make me in their debt. What do you want from me? I asked. They leaned forward and stapled their hands. I must say your stunt with the bus was impressive. We don't normally track that old equipment now that the schools are used as bases. You have skill. You might have made it through the border a few times. I don't dare admit that I had done this for more months than he knows. Your name is Jack. Well, Jack, we need those skills now, the old man said, leaning back and adding, except we need to bring people into Carrie's Ridge. I laughed out loud this time. Who would want to do that? Desperation makes people stupid. Do what we ask and you might get lucky to see your own life again, the pilot demanded. I know that I can't say no. This is another fine mess that I've gotten myself into. The first week working for Pantheon, I tried my best to lock out my consciousness and do the work that I was told. I know that a single wrong move could wind up with a bullet in my skull. These people don't play. 
I learned that day one when I saw one of the new residents try to flee. Troops that wore full body armor fired on them without mercy. Sometimes they did it just for sport. I considered just letting it happen. I didn't really feel like I deserved to live now that I was helping them haul fresh meat into the grinder. But I knew if I fell, that would spell death for the people that I care about. My curse was my family, and I had to keep moving forward to look the other way because of them. The families were sold lies, told that Carrie's Ridge was a place that they could start fresh, locked away from the rest of the world. No one knew the nightmares that were being unleashed regularly here. Media reports always painted a rosy picture. The quarantine wasn't to prevent infection but to allow utopian society to flourish, they said. Dumping corpses into incinerators said otherwise. Every run the rejects would be lined up outside my bus and slaughtered. Pantheon claimed that they were being selective, but I soon learned a trend. Adults above the age of 25 were always considered worthless to them. A few would be allowed entry as workers or producers, just to keep anyone from raising alarm. The rest would be at the firing range. The worst part was when they made the kids watch. Pantheon believed this would quench any rebellion in their new batch, but I had a different theory. I saw it in their eyes as their parents wept and then were silenced by rains of bullets. These kids wanted blood, and I almost wanted to give it to them. But I've seen so much of what these monsters do that I can't call them children anymore. Two runs during that first month I was attacked. Once by a group of children, all of whom were suffering from the biomutation that Pantheon had pumped into their bodies. They didn't even have human features anymore. Just writhing flesh and angry raw fury, let loose to kill and be killed. Yet even in this bizarre state when they attacked my bus, I knew that they still had some fragment of their humanity left, because they would try to get the people on the bus out. Let them escape before they too became fodder for Pantheon. But it was never enough. They have a chokehold on this town. I realized as I watched those flesh-eating mutants run amok. Pantheon never killed them. They only redirected their mindless hunt. All for the greater good, they would say. My employer, a man that I soon came to simply call Boss, claimed that every new child that was affected by the miracle would be a step further into the future of our species. If this is the future, I told him, I weep for humanity. It was three weeks in that that I had my first run-in with a different sort of problem. I had crossed the border and made my way into a small town in Kansas. Trout, a rep from Pantheon, was giving a speech to farmers and their children. Only 500 miles from here, the world is being changed. Our company was hired by your government to create that change and now we are asking you to join our vision of the future. We came here because we see your struggles and your dreams, and we want to offer you a solution beyond what you could imagine. Trout shouted. His voice echoed along past the city streets. Most of the crowd was eating up what he said as I stood by, wearing a clean uniform and looking like an indentured servant. 
smiling at them as they waited to sign their lives away. I didn't anticipate this being any different than other rallies. But then I realized that not everybody was so happy that we were there. There were rumblings in the back, several people moving through the crowd and making noise that unsettled me. A man with a rifle fired into the air to get everybody's attention. These government pigs are selling you a devil's bargain. We've seen the truth of Carey's Ridge. It ain't no paradise, he said. Trout at first was unfazed by the outburst. Each time we came across the border we brought armed automatons, just in case things went south. It looked like he was considering ordering them to kill these newcomers. But before he had the chance, somebody jumped from behind the bus and tackled him to the ground. A second later, the entire crowd became chaotic. I watched awestruck as a few of the people in the crowd approached the stage, taking on the armed machines that were meant to guard us. The woman that had tackled Trout managed to procure the shutoff device for these security robots and shut them down, tossing it to the first speaker. He was a taller young guy with dark brown hair and hazel eyes. He looked like he had seen his fair share of battles, and his eyes focused on me as they pulled Trout to his feet. Driver, you're gonna take us into Carry Ridge with no incidents. Your log will say this is a full cargo for Pantheon. Can you do that? He asked. I gave a nod. Trout looked like he wanted to kill me. We got on the bus and I counted heads. There were six of them altogether, four men and two women. They all wore what looked like college vests with a fire symbol on their left breastplate. You know that you'll be killed. I warned as I revved the engine and we drove out of town. And this ain't our first time and it won't be the last. The young man who had a gun to Trout's head announced. Seemed like he was the one in charge. I drove in silence for a moment as I checked my manifest. Pantheon was expecting a busload of new clients for the next wave. Instead, I was bringing a team of crazies that I guess were hoping to liberate the people of Carey's Ridge. But I was wrong about that one too. Trout tried to bargain with them, offering them money or to allow somebody from within the border to be given freedom. The group didn't seem interested in any of his ideas. In fact, they hardly talked at all except to ask how much further. We made it to the border by nightfall. I showed the false manifest to the border patrol and because I had been there just long enough to gain trust and they didn't ask questions. We drove into town with the sun setting. And then the tech they used to keep this place a secret took over and we were shrouded in darkness. I can't recall the last time that Carrie's Ridge has seen sunlight. Pantheon claims that it helps to evolve the new batches of kids that they experiment on. I think it's just another part of their sick experiment. The leader of the team tells me to head for a particular school. Weber Intermediate, he said. That's where they keep the successes, I told him. What I meant was that the children that Pantheon believed were not total nutjobs or freaks were housed there. Well, that's why we're going there, driver, the leader shot back. I have a name, I told him, and I don't give a crap. Your job has always been transport. Do it right and you'll finally make a difference tonight. I said nothing and I drove down the road, 
my heart racing as we got closer to the school. I had no idea what they planned to do that night. My mind raced through the possibilities. These soldiers might be connected to the kids somehow. Maybe parents or lost relatives. Maybe they're going to break them out. But when the first wave hit, which honestly feels like a lifetime ago, Pantheon wasn't as strict with their quarantine protocols. Some people slipped through the cracks. I can't help but wonder if that is what is happening here. You can't let them get inside. Trout warned me as we got closer to the school. There isn't a light on inside. All of the children have been ordered to sleep. Nah, this is close enough. Keep the engine running, you hear. The leader tells me. All of them get off the bus and rush toward the west side of the building. I'm alone now with just Trout. He's tied up a few seats behind me, but his threats burn my soul. You know that you can't just let this happen. Drive from here before they destroy our entire operation. Those children cannot be allowed into the outside world. It's too dangerous. You have to think about the consequences here, he ordered. My foot sits on the gas pedal. I've been looking the other way for so long, I don't really know how to make a decision for myself anymore. I know that he's right, though. Despite all that I hate about this town, I know the real reason that everybody's locked in here. We keep them from getting out, and it has to stay that way. I realized as I put the vehicle in reverse and started to back away. I didn't make it more than 10 feet before the entire school exploded in a rain of fire. I felt my heart sink and my body shake as I heard the roar of the massive cloud of smoke and the waves of flames shooting out of the windows. Glass broke and bricks shook all throughout the school. Then, from amid that cloud of debris, these six soldiers emerged. They had brought with them one of the adult instructors, a woman with short blonde hair. And before I knew what was happening, we were back on the bus and the leader ordered me to drive. Where are we going now? Do you plan to destroy all the schools? I asked. Rome wasn't built in a day. We need to get going. We already got trackers on our tails, he said. I spotted helicopters and I heard gunfire hit the roof of the bus as I hit reverse, my heart now beating out of my chest as we leave the area. What did you do back there? Did you just kill them all? I asked in shock. At first, none of them dared to speak and their silence actually told me the whole story. You were hired to destroy these successes, I realized. That word is meaningless when it comes to what has happened to those kids. What we did was mercy. None of them have normal lives that they can return to. Just further torture from Pantheon. And the ones that do get out just become monsters anyway. One of them sat looking down at the floor. Alarms blare throughout the town as we drive like a bat out of hell toward the border. I wanted to know more about their group, their mission, and who was backing them, but I never had the courage to ask that first time. We had to make it across the border without dying, and that was all depending on me. One thing that I knew for sure was how to escape. I didn't take the traditional roads. Instead, I drove the bus toward the abandoned tunnels, where the helicopters couldn't follow. As we finally were surrounded by darkness, I made another awful decision. 
Trout will not allow this to happen again. He'll warn every transport to be careful of you. You have to kill him or take him hostage. I can say that I was overpowered and they'll probably torture me because of it, but at least I might be useful again later. I told them as I put my brights on. They knocked out Trout right after I gave the warning and the second woman remarked, Now oh, he's gonna squeal like a pig when we get him to D.C. We drove for hours through the tunnels until we were well past the border. It ended with my bus out of gas about five miles from the exit. Uh, we can handle the rest on foot here, driver. You did good tonight. The leader reassured me. Given the slaughter that we had left behind and the danger that I was in, I wasn't sure that I believed his soothing words. Will we meet again? I asked. Just look for this. He said pointing to the fire symbol. What does it mean? I asked. You're a club member. We're a club Prometheus and don't forget the name. A second man told me as he dragged a trout to the door and then flung his unconscious body over his shoulder. I took a final look at the woman that they had apparently escorted out of here, her eyes tearful but excited. So your mission is to steal fire from the gods, I quipped. The second woman gave me a roguish smile. Something like that. And then they disappeared. I anticipated my punishment from boss, but he still managed to make it the most brutal that I had received in quite some time. They used whips and tasers on my bare flesh, burning and ripping off parts of my skin as I screamed until I passed out. When I came to, a boss wanted to speak with me. He was crunching some peanuts between his grimy teeth as he spit on my forehead. This is the first time in months that we've experienced a loss this devastating. Do you have any idea how many assets we lost from that facility? I said nothing. Despite the fact that I was numb to anything but the pain, I still had disgust for the fact that he was referring to those children as nothing more than resources. 300. That's 300 weapons that we'll have to compensate for. Do you have the money to pay for that driver? I shook my head and he kicked me in the skull. It felt like I was going to black out again, but that mercy didn't come. Instead, he told his armed men to hold me against the wall as he burned his cigarettes into me. But if those idiotic vigilantes think that such a dent is going to stop what we're trying to accomplish here, then they're dead wrong. We have opened Pandora's box and there's no going back. Only forward, only to the future. And we are the ones that offer humanity the potential to something our ancestors only dreamed about. He was rambling on, but I didn't care. He had a mad gaze in his eyes. He was thinking of another cruel way to discipline me. Now I have a new assignment for you in the north. There's a town there suffering from a pathogen. Many of the adults are dying and the children need to be moved to foster care. Your job is to move them here instead. It's a larger job than any of you had before, but if you're successful... We can overlook this little incident, boss told me. And that was how I was bound for North Washington, a little town called Halderon. Population said they were about 42,000, but as I reached the outskirts of the city, I realized that it had to be drastically less. 
There was a large mound near the road sign that I first assumed was just compost and trash. But upon getting closer, I realized that it was actually corpses from the pathogen that was hitting this little town. I put a gas mask on and drove my bus toward the Pantheon Barrier. Their presence here told me that they already controlled the majority of the area, possibly to create another base of operations like Carey's Ridge. It made me wonder how many other small towns across the country, or the world, this company had its claws in. I showed my company ID and passed the patrol with no problem. As I drove into town, I felt an uneasy sense of dread overwhelm me. Something awful was happening here that triggered memories of when this whole mess had started in Carrie's Ridge. Some conspiracy theorists online have claimed these viruses are controlled, all designed by Pantheon to continue their senseless attack experiments. I don't know what to think because my mind is focused on the secret cargo that I have arranged to bring into Halderon. You're clear for now. I tell the two masked men that I picked up when I crossed Wyoming. I saw the fire symbol on their jacket, and on impulse I told them my mission. They immediately requested to join. And Club Prometheus will be in debt to you if this turns out to be a solid lead. The first man told me, I drove down the next road, my eyes darting around to make sure that no patrols saw us. What is it you think you can do? This is a highly populated town, and these kids aren't like the mutants that you hit in Carrie's Ridge, I said. The second man got right in my face. You just now decided to start having a conscience. How long have you been hauling them to Pantheon without even batting an eye? Any of them that get to a facility are as good as dead. Once they're experimented on, they lose their humanity, he told me. I wondered if that was what he told himself to get over the fact that his mission was to hunt them down. But you don't need to fret too much. We aren't here for the kids this time. The first man told me as I parked the bus and let them out. Look for the fire, and that's when you'll know that we're ready to go. I drove on to the school where Boss had told me that I was to meet with another rep. This one was an older man who looked like he was on death's door. There was an assembly of kids outside the school, sitting cross-legged on the front steps behind him, probably about 30 of them. I got out and shielded my eyes, showing my ID to them as I looked at the kids. They all looked scared and confused trying to understand this new reality that was forced upon them. None of them were over ten. All of them started to get up and get on the bus, not even saying a word. Where exactly will I be taking them? The facility in Carrie's Ridge can't house all of them, I added. I think you misunderstand the mission here, driver. You are to take them to this location and leave them there. Pantheon will handle the rest. The old man told me, I kept searching the city for any sign of the fire from the masked men, but so far there was nothing. I had no choice but to keep playing along with this crazy sick plan. I got the bus packed and drove out the same way that I had come in. I went as slow as I could, but the signal for fire that I was looking for didn't appear. As I got out of town, a pit formed in my stomach. I had gone out of my way to help them and now this happened. Were they tricking me? 
just as I felt that things weren't going to turn around and that I had reached the point of no return. I saw smoke rising from the west side of Helderon. The kids became excited and I slowed down to look in my rear view. Club Prometheus had done exactly as promised, making a mark on the town that could easily be seen. I turned the bus toward the smoke, patrol cars ignoring me in the chaos of the blaze as I reached the barrier on that side of Helderon. The masked men were there and revealed their exit strategy. The fire that was burning was the local airport, and only a single large jetliner remained. We're getting these kids out of here. I nodded and drove up next to the large plane, shouting to the kids to get there. I could already see armed trucks driving toward our location. Men with guns and Pantheon uniforms were driving at top speed to stop us. They're going to kill anybody that is still here, I said as I got the last kid on the plane. In that moment, I realized that anyone that I cared about at Carrier's Ridge was likely already dead or worse off. I had no reason to keep throwing my life away being a slave for these madmen. Please take me with you. Let me join Club Prometheus. The two masked men didn't even hesitate to let me aboard and told me to buckle up as the Pantheon security team began to fire on the plane. They hit the fuel tank of the bus that I had been driving a few seconds ago and it exploded as our plane roared down the runway. We took off from Halderon with their gunfire hitting our plane at max speed. I didn't stop to relax until we were well above cloud cover and the kids were cheering excited to have managed such a thrilling escape. Uh, we won't be out of the woods until we make it to Canada. There is a refugee camp set up there where these kids can have a new life. No guarantee that it's really any better than what they had in Alderaan, but at least it isn't stuck in a Pantheon lab somewhere, the first man said. The second man was flying the plane and took off his mask. He looked so young that I could have confused him with a high schooler. That first time you struck against them, they didn't take you seriously. Now they will begin to actively attack you and hunt you down, I warned. The second man laughed. I would like to see them try. There's a war on the horizon and what we did today is just the beginning. Pantheon is going to pay for all that they've done. I felt a surge of pride for helping them. I almost felt like a person again because I could say that. I wasn't just a cog in the mindless machine. Above all, I felt hope for the future. The first man offered me a simple badge with the fire symbol emblazoned on it. If you want to help, we don't say no to anyone, but you need to recognize that wearing this is literally painting a target on your back. You sure that you want that? He asked. I put it on. Surprised that such a simple gesture would make me feel like I was meant to make a difference again. Hey, it looks good on you, he said with a lopsided grin. Welcome to the club. Tanner's story. A car with fancy rims hits the puddle next to me, splashing mud and grime over my face. It's nothing that I'm not used to at this point. The stench from the dumpster that I'm sitting beside covers the other odors that waft over me as I reached for a soggy piece of bread. Despite being in the gutter for God knows how long, I take a bite. Enough to keep me from starving, I thought as I looked across the street. 
The streetlight gave me a view of my target, a bar called Ventura, and I mentally review my plan. Getting inside would be the easy part. The bouncer would be distracted by the VIPs that arrive in 10 minutes. Like clockwork, the women that work here every Tuesday night will give me the opportunity to slip past security. I know how to blend in, but once I'm inside, then that's a different story. Over the past week, I've managed to gather bits and pieces of what the layout of the place is like. Nothing special unless you're a high roller. It was that type of client that I was looking for anyway. So my goal once in the dim light was to masquerade as a waiter. My scrawny body shouldn't attract too many curious eyes, as long as I can maintain the persona for long enough to gain access to the private area. As soon as I finish the mental checklist, the limousine rolls up and I drop the food back on the dirty streets. There isn't a moment to lose here. Paparazzi begin to swirl like sharks around the car as I step toward the private line, keeping my head down and my face concealed. The cameras and the lights do their job as the woman flirt with the bouncer. The one that I bribed does an extra bit of work to push her chest out and coyly suggests that she wants to see him later in the night. It's enough to get me in the door. Once there, the screaming country music and the chaotic crowd allow me to not worry about maintaining my low profile. I slip to the side of the bar and study the layout again. The long strip of bottles and beers surrounded by patrons on either side holds the attention of most of the visitors. But my focus is on the employees that weave between the drunken guests and offer extra drinks and provide food. I need to decide which of them I will transform into for the next phase of my plan. It doesn't take long for me to make that decision. A young man, probably the same age as me, brushes past, looking distracted and out of time as he goes back to the kitchen. His unfocused mind will be his downfall. Slinking toward the door as I listen to the commotion in the back of the bar, here the servers are doing their best to keep things running smoothly, so even though it's nearly as noisy as the rest of the place, I can tell that they're moving with purpose. They have a job to do. And so do I. I think as I spot my quarry slip into the men's restroom. Now or never, I decide, following after him. As he goes to one of the stalls, I notice a wet floor sign on the side of the wall and use it as a doorstop to make sure that I don't get interrupted. When the waiter came out to wash his hands, there wasn't a time to hesitate. I grabbed him by the back of his hair and slammed his head on the sink, pushing his unconscious body to the slippery floor below. For a moment, I felt a tinge of guilt for being so brutal toward him, but I can't get sentimental. Time is running out, I realize, as I methodically strip him of his uniform and then make sure that I look presentable in the mirror. Breathing in and telling myself to relax, I hear another patron trying to get in the restroom and move the wet floor sign back to its original position. The next customer waltzed in and looked dumbstruck at the half-naked man on the floor. I shrugged, stepping back to the busy bar and moving toward the kitchen. In a place as crazy as this, I will be just another worker bee, 
I told myself as I found a tray and grabbed several margaritas from the open bar. My next move was toward the private booth in the back. On the opposite side of the bar, I could see the woman from the front lobby entering the curtains, and I realized that I was actually behind schedule. If I didn't move quickly, my chance would be gone entirely. I hurried toward the curtain, doing my best to ignore other guests who thought that I was a server, and then stepping in line behind one of them to the private area. The guard for this area gave me a quick glance before saying something in his earpiece, and then pulled the curtain back and let me into the quieter rooms. There were fewer tables and the lighting was dimmer. The woman who had been hired as private entertainment was the main attraction at the center, and I heard a few men shouting excitedly as a dance began. I scanned the room for the one that I was looking for. He was easy to spot. Two of the women were dangling from his arms as I approached the table and offered them a drink. The white-suited man affably offered to pay for them and gave me a credit card paying me absolutely no mind. Just in case I wasn't sure, the card confirmed that this was my target. Calvin Weiss, head engineer of Pantheon Science Division. I slipped to the side of the dark rooms and prepared their drinks, returning as quickly as I could to get a one-on-one -on -one audience with them. As he sipped his drink, I finally dared to speak. I had planned a speech, but honestly, the moment called for something off the cuff. You're Calvin Weiss, aren't you? I love your advertisements. I said with the most convincing smile. The dark-haired man couldn't help but immediately take the bait. I could tell that he was the type that probably enjoyed talking about himself all night. Ah, thank you kindly, boy. Just doing my duty to spread the gospel. Pantheon is changing the world, you know. He said with that same goofy southern granny made hundreds of times before. Oh, I know exactly how they've changed things. So if somebody like me wanted to get involved in that sort of drug trial, what would I have to do? I asked, leaning forward. I wanted him to get a good look at my face. Now you can fill out the app online and go by one of our local stores. Heck, I'll even put in a personal recommendation for you. What's your name, friend? Vice slurred. I smiled thinly. Tanner, Tanner North. I'm from Barnesworth, I responded. A look of surprise washed over his face as he recognized the name of the town. He lowered his sunglasses to try and get a good look at my face now, and I felt my right hand ready to explode as I decided to drop the act. I've been wanting to do this for three years now, Mr. Vice. I hope you make it worth my while. I laughed as I dropped the tray and pointed my hand at his body. Flames flickered out of the palm of my skin as my entire body started to heat up and my heart raced. The woman screamed and tried to move as I prepared to fire her, but the moment did not come. Just as I was seeing fear sink in on a sorry face, I heard the loudest explosion from behind me in the bar and I hesitated. I turned to see what it might be and in that moment, Vice struck back. Kicking the table toward me, he shouted for his guest to escape as he called to security. At the same time, the curtain to the VIP lounge ripped down, and I saw a red-haired woman with a long, sharp katana drop from one of the chandeliers. Everything about her demeanor and stance told me that 
she was not here for pleasure like the others. As soon as she had intruded the room, several guards rushed toward her and she screamed in their faces, using her blade to cut them down. Whooping around the room at lightning speeds, I found myself unable to keep up with her movements, and neither could any of the guards. She smashed bottles and pushed over tables, turning the place into a trash heap as she blurted in and out of the room. Vice made a run for it, shouting obscenities as his entourage was taken down and trying to use what looked like brass knuckles to swing at the check. It was a moot effort. She pinned him down and plunged her blade into his right leg, mercilessly laughing as she pulled him next to her by the shirt collar. Let's go somewhere private to talk, huh? She said between gritted teeth. Wait, I shouted amid the chaos. The redhead gave me an icy glare, daring me to come any closer. My hands became balls of fire again as I said. I have a score to settle with him too. The girl looked at my unnatural powers and nodded slightly, tossing me what looked like a small badge with a symbol of fire coming down from heaven on it. Take that to Makra Bay, the old Red Hook Theater. Ask for Ecclesiastes. Tell him a horse sent ya, she responded. I memorized the instructions and stared at Vice. He was begging for mercy like an idiot. What about him? I asked. Behind me, I could hear security trying to get close and protect their clientele. She grabbed him by the shirt and rocketed toward the ceiling, hanging from the rafters as she cackled. Oh, don't worry, I'll leave you a few scraps to play with. And then in a blur, she smashed through a window, taking Vice with her. The room spun in disaster for a few moments longer as I was pushed aside by other security guards. Thanks to her courageous efforts, the entire bar was barely standing, and my little show had been ignored entirely. I was a bit frustrated if I'm being honest that after all this planning, my revenge was taken from me. But this is only temporary. I thought to myself as I toyed with the badge that she had offered me. It was time to catch a bus to Macro Bay. I slept on the trip to the coast. My dreams were not pleasant, but then again, they haven't been for quite some time. And the nightmare that was my past, Vice and his goons poked and prodded me. Like so many others of my age, they claimed that we were sick and offered a cure. Pantheon, their company, had the solution to this new pandemic. Like sheep offered to the slaughter, we accepted it without a question. I can still feel what it did to my body. I changed in an instant. But my change to this monstrous power was the most insignificant compared to the vast majority of children that were affected. The others are hardly even human anymore. I thought as I looked up at the news broadcast from Halderon. 300 weapons stolen from Pantheon Labs, the report said. I couldn't help but stifle a smile. To the world at large, Pantheon was an amazing company. They had fooled everyone to be in the saviors of humankind. No one really knew what they did to those sick kids, at least not yet. Maybe there's a bigger movement against them than I thought. I realized as I grabbed my stuff and stepped out onto the empty street. Maybe the redhead that I met is a part of something bigger, something that could finally make a difference, I thought. 
I moved through the empty streets of this port. Makra Bay is a ghost town and I can't help but wonder if this is another place that Pantheon used for their mindless war. I see a few old trucks on the side of the road with their logo and corpses dumped onto the streets like refuse and it makes me seethe with rage. These kids once had lives and yet these mad scientists have ruined their hopes and dreams. I can't help but to wonder what they ever thought they would accomplish with this mutagen. Not that it matters, as long as they pay for what they did to me and to the others. As long as they burn. I finally found the theater that she told me to go to in the downstairs area and briefly wondered if she had sent me to a dead end. It looked even more abandoned than the rest of the town. Reluctantly, I approached the ticket booth and knocked on the old plywood. I felt foolish at first until the metallic slit opened and a gruff voice asked why I was there. Horse sent me, I said, offering the token that I had received. A dark-skinned hand slipped out and took it, and then to my left I heard a worrying noise to reveal the hidden door. Enter Pawn, the voice told me. I stepped into the lobby and the man that had taken my ticket now visible in the gloom. He looked no different than me except that his hair was completely white, and that he had no visible pupils anymore. Another reject from Pantheon, aren't ya? I asked him. Around these parts, we consider that a blessing, he said, offering me a blindfold. Put that on and take my hand, he told me. Where are we going? I asked. His strange, soulless eyes appeared to flicker in the darkness. The promised land, he responded. I did as I was told, trying my best to listen to the strange noises as I was taken somewhere. From what I gathered as we moved, we were underground beneath the city, probably by miles. When the blindfold was finally removed, I saw that we were definitely in a repurposed mineshaft, or an old bomb shelter of some sort, with rows of surveillance equipment and spying equipment in small antechambers. In front of me at a small gathering area, I saw the redhead drinking a pint of beer and laughing with a bald-headed man as Ecclesiastes guided me toward her. So you came after all, she said as the dark-skinned man tossed the pendant that I had given him back to her. I told you before, I have a score to settle with Vice. The two traded a curious look and she asked me where I had been experimented on. I don't like to talk about that. I said. It's rare that Pantheon tosses away good fodder. From what I saw the other night at the bar, you would have made a formidable weapon for them. Probably one of their most successful, if I'm being honest. She told me, offering me a beer mug. Well, that's kind of the problem. I was a success, for a while anyway. They used me as a poster child for recruits down south. I would give speeches to crowds of eager bright-eyed kids that wanted to join their legions. I would show off for them like a trained monkey. I told her bitterly. So what went wrong? Vice. He's always been about pushing the limits of human capabilities. And since I seemed to be at the top of the top, he wanted to know if things could be taken further. I was transferred to a different facility somewhere in the mountains. It was beyond top secret. Somehow Vice had gathered other people with gifts like mine and was going to see if he could increase their powers. It didn't go well. 
I tried my best to shake away the memories, but the dark-skinned man gripped my shoulder and I felt them rush headfirst into my mind. I saw my friends dying before my eyes again, or melting from sheer overload. Their bodies twisted and misshapen and they were living abominations that couldn't die. I realized as I heard their howls and shook them off. No, I don't want to see that again, please. Enough, Roman. I can tell that it's truthful. It looks like our intel on Vice was correct. He's gone rogue. She said pushing her fingers against her chin thoughtfully. Well, if so, shouldn't we be considering him as an ally rather than another enemy? Roman whispered back. You just saw those memories now, didn't you? Did that look like the type of man that we want to throw our lot in with? She asked. Well, then we need to find out where this hidden lab is and burn it to the ground, he decided. They focused back on me. Do you think you can get Vice to talk? The redhead asked. He's here? I muttered, hardly believing my luck. I would give anything to have five minutes with that piece of crap. We've been tracking his activity for some time. Your account of how he's been trafficking gifted weapons lines up with what we believe is a pattern that goes opposite of what his mandate is. In short, Vice is doing something off the books that we need to know what. Clyde explained. Can't you just use your mind powers? I asked. If it were that simple, we wouldn't be asking you. In short, he's got certain biogens in place that prevent me from seeing his memories. He responded. Yeah, sure, I'll get him to talk. But I need you to promise me that this time after I get what you need, you won't interfere with my own business. I snapped. The two exchanged an uncomfortable look before nodding and the redhead said, I'm sure the other club members will understand. It's for the greater good. She stood up and went to get things prepped for me to interrogate Vice while I nervously sipped my beer. How many of you are there? I asked. Uh, less than a dozen. We're a small operation, but that makes it difficult for us to be tracked. Most of this is automated via satellites and other artificial intelligence that we've hacked. The real work is people like you, giving us a helping hand to shut down Pantheon for good. Clyde told me. Hmm, so what's with the superhero codenames? Horus and Ecclesiastes. It's kind of weird, I told him. And you'd be surprised how easy it is for our information to be leaked, even though we are ghosts. And we aren't superheroes, if anything. I would call us vigilantes. Now you're good to go. He's in room 5. Remember, don't kill him until we extract what we need, she told me. I clenched my fists and felt the fire burn up inside my soul. I'll do my best to try not to. When I stepped into the room, Vice looked a little worried to see that I had found him again. His suit was tattered and his hair was unkempt. It was actually the first time that I had ever seen him scared. I don't mind saying that I was relishing what I would do to him. You don't remember me, do you? I whispered as the door behind me sealed shut. Barnesworth, that's what I remember. You were Pantheon's golden child, the recruiter, he said with a chuckle. Guess it was inevitable that the gig wouldn't last. I commented as I sat down opposite of him. I can't help but to think that had I not pulled you from that sorry job, you would still be singing their praises like a trained parakeet.
Vice snarled. My left eye twitched. So I should be thanking you then. Oh, absolutely. We were on the verge of greatness and we still are. He leaned forward, a thin smile crossing his face. You and I both know this ragtag band of wannabe caped crusaders will never be enough to tackle the bigwigs at HQ. But what we were doing in those mountains, now that's going to topple some dominoes. So you want to stop them, I guessed. I think that would be unnecessary. Initially, they had the favor of the people with their promises of newfound tech and advancing the human race. But now they've lost public favor. The people are fickle. They've lost interest in the biogenetic race and don't give two flips what Pantheon does. They won't die out immediately, but they'll be unimportant. Maybe that's what they wanted all along. Who can say? Vice said with a shrug. And you think that they're wasting the potential of people like me? I asked. If what you and these idiots can do is any indication, they've hardly even scratched the surface of our powers as a species. And that's why you need to let me go, he insisted. He had this twinkle in his eye when he spoke. It was disturbing to see how much he enjoyed the work that he was doing. I wanted to say so many things to you when I finally got you alone, but I can see now that none of it matters. I said as my skin blistered and I felt the fire burning against my nostrils. The only thing you're good for is the information in that sorry skull of yours. I snapped. I pushed him against the wall, my burning hand searing against him. He did his best to not cry out in pain, but I could tell that it was hurting him. I would never compromise my work. It's my life. Pantheon didn't understand me. I was hoping somebody of your caliber would. Pity, he spat back. It's a good thing that I don't need you to cooperate. I was almost an inferno now, my eyes blinding over as I pushed my fingers against his scalp. Any chance that he had of not screaming stopped there as I pushed my nails into his skull like needles. They tapped into his brain and I used my other gift to begin to extract what I needed from him. Waves of images flooded me as I felt his pain transfer to my body. My entire being began to shake and convulse but I refused to back off. His head was on fire now, his screams were so loud that I thought the others would stop me. I pushed even further, listening in satisfaction to his suffering, as I forced him to give me what I needed to know. At last I broke away and collapsed on the floor, the man hardly able to babble two words as the door behind me sealed open. Huh, you're full of surprises. Is that one of the new tricks that he gave ya? The redhead asked. I call it a mind melt. He's alive now, but his brain is jelly. He'll just be a bag of crap the rest of his days. It's what I call poetic justice. I said as I stood up and took a deep breath. Lovely, what did you see? I closed my eyes again, his memories now my own. I know where he took me. I said and told her to get me a map of the Northern Territories. We moved away from the room and she grabbed one laying it out for me to study. I pointed it to a small mountain range in western Alaska. The facility is there, I told them. A dead zone. I suppose that makes sense, but that certainly doesn't make things easy, she commented. 
She rolled up the map and barked orders to some of her workers to start gathering supplies. I want to come with you. I want to join your club, I told her. She chuckled and looked at me like it was ridiculous that I even asked. I thought you were already on board, mate. I sighed in relief and for the first time in forever, I felt like I actually belonged. Every month, my college goes into lockdown. At 8pm, all doors will lock. Written by Trash Tia. My college takes star signs way too seriously. Is that understood? The college dean was lecturing me and I was staring down at my lap trying to fathom how I got myself in this situation. I had guards standing behind me acting like I was some escaped psychopath. Every time I moved, I noticed them snap to attention in the corner of my eye. I was supposed to belong here. I was supposed to find myself. But all that I had found was a student body that was deadly serious about separating their students according to their zodiac. My gaze flicked to an astrology chart on the wall with the school's least favorite sign scribbled out in permanent marker. The dean's office was an astrologer's wet dream. The dean herself was my mother's age, a scowling woman who was more shadow than person, a projector illuminating constellations across the room, casting her face in an eerie white light. I had been lazily following Orion across the walls when she finally snapped, and I jerked to attention, my gaze flicking back to her. Miss Oliver. I nodded in response, my cheeks burning. Orion skimmed across her face, and I found myself mesmerized by how beautiful the star was. Her office was fairly cozy, a messy kind of cozy. There were books and papers piled around her, empty coffee mugs and what looked like star maps spread across her laptop coffee staining each corner. It was a mistake, I finally said through the gutter in my throat. It wasn't a mistake, but it's not like I could say that. For some reason, along with this college's draconian rules mapped around the zodiac of all things, there was one star sign in particular that had been outcasted. I turned my attention back to the scribbled out symbol, Gemini. If there was ever a zodiac that was hated or not liked, Gemini was never that star sign. I grew up with kids in my class hating Pisces because they refused to be related to a fish, or a cancer because of the crab. Gemini was in these summer months and the constellation in my opinion was beautiful, but not to these guys. Starting my freshman year, I started to realize how badly the Gemini students were being treated with the guys getting the worst of it. Being a late admission, I was new along with another kid who appeared to be the joker of the class at first. He was friendly enough, introducing himself with a grin. We were asked for our star signs as an icebreaker, or what I thought was an icebreaker, and he shrugged with a small smile. Um, I think I'm a Gemini. He sounded unsure of himself, leaning back in his chair. 
Yeah, I was born on June 10th. I'm a Gemini. I expected that to be the end of it, but I noticed a sudden shift in the air. Like the guy that had just announced that he had murdered his whole family. The girl sitting next to him inched away slowly, dragging her laptop with her, while the rest of the class seemed to collectively let out a breath before twisting to the back of the class. It was almost a robotic movement, their heads snapping around, eyes narrowing. I didn't even see them. The four students in the shadows, heads bowed over their MacBooks. The professor's expression seemed to crumple his eyes darkening significantly. I think he spoke in a sharp breath before seemingly collecting himself. I think you should join your friends at the back, he said coldly. Until then, the professor had stapled himself as a cool teacher. A man in his early 40s sporting a long trench coat over jeans and a t-shirt. Very chic. But now it was like looking at a different person. He took slow steps back across the stage, almost stumbling. I could almost mistake his expression for fear. I said, the professor's voice broke around the words and something ice cold wriggled its way down my spine. I think you should join your friends. The Gemini kid seemed baffled and a little hurt. The air was thick, every eye burning into him. I felt like they were looking at me too. The professor's eyes were wide, lips curled like he might say something, but he just shook his head, seemingly gathering himself. I'm confused. The kid laughed nervously, almost jumping out of his chair when a girl behind him kicked his bag across the floor. He sent her a questioning look. Is, is this some kind of joke? Now, the professor wasn't even looking at him. But, the boy tried to laugh. It's just a star sign, right? I will not ask you again, the professor said stiffly. He didn't move as if doing so would mean being closer to the boy. He folded his arms across his chest. If you do not move to your designated seat right now, then you're out of my class. To my surprise, the boy got up and moved to the back, ignoring students cringing away from him. He didn't speak again, sticking to his assigned group. I noticed that everybody else had been separated into their zodiac signs. Leos were at the front, with Sagittarius and Libra surrounding them. And the other star signs were harder to make out. I thought it was just that class who were taking these zodiacs a little too seriously. But no, this thing had spread across campus like a virus. Students didn't care about their grades or what careers they were going to get. Because these star signs on the top of the social hierarchy had the faculty wrapped around their little fingers. A Libra girl found out that she was no longer compatible with the Scorpio and stopped talking to him completely. Ghosting him on social media and going as far as moving halfway across the classroom from him. The entire campus had gone crazy, including the faculty. But it was only certain star signs who were allowed extra credit and invited into exclusive clubs while the rest of us were left in the dust. And Geminis were either treated like dirt or feared, like they were carrying a contagious disease. 
It was like going back to middle school. In the sixth grade, I was proud of my star sign. I liked to think that I had a secret twin after learning about the story behind the constellation. Castor and Pollux, twin brothers transformed into Gemini. I used to draw the twins on the back of my hands, daydreaming my very own. Mina Lucas, a Pisces, called me two-faced because Gemini had two faces, and so I called her an ugly fish. This was middle school, though. It is normal for kids to build personalities around their star signs. But for college students, however, they're grown adults. It was fine to base a crush around a star sign or compatibility, but your whole life, your social circle and education. It was bad enough that my classmates were brainwashed by stars, but the professors too. It didn't make sense. It didn't make sense that my roommate had a mental breakdown the night before because she didn't have anything blue to wear. According to her star sign, she had to wear blue to have a good day. Geminis were either mercilessly bullied by students and professors alike, or treated like they were invisible. I had noticed over the last few days that disgust had turned to fear. Instead of bullying Geminis, other students steered clear of them. I saw it contorted on every face, wary of the Gemini sitting near them and presently, I saw it on my dean's face. She was scared of me. The woman may have seemed in control, but I noticed her finger anxiously tapping on her coffee mug, her gaze flashing to and from the clock on the wall. She was waiting for something, her demeanor tense, her eyebrows furrowed. Every passing minute seemed to unnerve her even more. A mistake, she repeated my words, her tone dripping with sarcasm. Yeah, I didn't look her in the eyes, wiping my clammy hands on my jeans. What was I supposed to say? I didn't want to associate myself with what I thought was a trend, a TikTok thing that would fizzle out like everything else but I was staring down at a handwritten letter crumpled between my fists of an anonymous tattletale calling out my real star sign. The crossed O stood out. Who wrote like that? I had been hiding under the facade of being a Sagittarius since Sagittarius and Leo seemed to be the it signs. They stood on some pedestal ruling over campus like some messed up clique. The letter was like a slap in the face. I had half a mind to tear it into pieces. I stared down at it, my eyes stinging. This letter told me that I didn't belong here. It told me that because the brainwashed hive mind on campus had decided to collectively despise the star that I was born under, that I was something to be feared, like an animal. Who sent it? I managed to get out. I squeezed the paper between my fist. Dearest Dean, in the passive-aggressive tone made my blood boil. I would like you to know of a traitor amongst you, a Sagittarius by the name of Oliver, who was in fact a Gemini. I am so sorry for ruining your day. Anonymous. I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. When I looked up, the Dean's glare was pinpointed directly in the middle of my forehead. If looks could kill. I don't know what to say, I squeezed out.
she hummed. Well, you can start by explaining yourself. She had to be kidding, right? No, when I looked her dead in the eye, this woman was being serious. Miss Oliver, I am horrified that you would disguise yourself as a Sagittarius. She curled her lip. As one myself, I should have sensed that her energy was wrong, polluted with her presence. But I let my guard down. I slammed the letter down this time. This woman was certifiably insane. Who sent this? I said again, this time harsher. That is none of your concern, the dean said. You lied, Miss Oliver. About my zodiac sign? I sucked in a breath. It's really not a big deal. Her eyes darkened. As you will discover, Miss Oliver, it is extremely important that we know where every Gemini is. Her gaze flashed to her MacBook screen, especially when certain measures have been put in place. Measures? I straightened to my seat. What kind of measures? Her lip curled. You are a late arrival. It is your fault for not arriving on time. You're kidding. I found myself speaking through a scoff. I was done. It was one thing with students doing this, but grown adults. She was enabling this bullying, inciting a fear that shouldn't exist. It was like being on a playground and some stupid kid pronouncing that Gemini smelled, and the rest of the kids following along, forming a hive mind. But this was a 40-something-year-old. The dean couldn't justify it, and even if she tried, she would be declared insane. I leaned forward, testing the boundaries. I wasn't surprised when the dean lurched back. Was it a bad experience? She blinked. I don't understand. A bad experience you had, I repeated, with a Gemini. I could sense the words suffocating my mouth, eager to slip out. After weeks of feeling like I was back in the sixth grade, finally confronting the root of the problem felt good. Platonic or maybe sexual, I inclined my head. Or maybe he or she ghosted you completely, so you brainwashed a campus full of impressionable young students to punish people who cannot help being born between the months of May and June. I felt satisfaction when her expression twisted. Because that is all it is, what you're all unhealthily obsessed with. I spoke through my teeth this time, weeks of repressed anger bubbling over. They're just stars, I said. They don't mean anything to anyone except children. Miss Oliver. See? Tracing along the constellation mapped out on her desk, I prodded each static light. To my confusion, it was the Gemini constellation which was ironic. I stabbed at the two twin stars, Castor and Pollux, and then Alhina. I nodded to Orion projected across the wall. Stars, they're just stars, dead and dying planets or if you're religious, your long dead relatives, whatever. I pointed at the map crinkled under a MacBook, and the Dean once again flinched her body angling its way away from me. She leaned away from me like I was contagious. One of the guards started forwards, no doubt to grab me, but she shook her head, maintaining that professional, if not slightly strained, smile.
There's no need. The dean spoke in a sharp breath and the guard stepped back. Miss Oliver is understandably upset. She cleared her throat. Please vacate your current dorm and move into the old building across campus where we house Gemini's without rooms. The dean stood before I could reply. I don't expect to see you in my office again. I grabbed my bag, getting to my feet. You're not throwing me out. Her lip twitched. We do not suspend Gemini students, Miss Oliver. But what if I want to leave? Her facial expression didn't waver. I'm afraid that's not possible. I nodded slowly, not completely registering her words. So you're saying that I can't leave? She shook her head. I'm afraid not. I glanced at the guard behind me. Why can't I leave? Because of the measures in place. Something warm wriggled its way up my throat and I tried to speak before the guards were politely shoving me out of her office. The dean's words didn't leave my mind until I was halfway across campus and out of breath and regretting every word that I had spat. She had sent me away with a warning and in order to leave my dorm room effective immediately and move into the old building off campus. I had seen it in passing, a large crumbling structure which used to be the old student dorm. The door was broken, bars on the windows. There was no way that I was staying there. Instead, I figured a couch crashing in a friend's dorm would be better. Al was a Leo and insisted that she didn't care about star signs. Coming from a Leo that was rich, she had the all-exclusive Leo experience. I was moving into her room later into the evening, playing cloak and dagger with these security guards on shift, when the announcement played on the intercom. Starting from 8pm, please lock all Geminis in their rooms. It is upon us. Elle froze up, her eyes widening. Until that moment, she had been unusually quiet, the two of us sitting cross-legged on the floor eating Chinese food. But I thought that she was just tired from classes. Elle didn't react to the message at first. She sent me a sleepy smile and then told me that she was going to grab a beer from the kitchen. What I didn't expect was for her to come back wielding one of her mom's butcher knives. I stepped back, but her eyes terrified me. Her entire body was trembling, fingers tightening around the handle. Her expression contorted with that same feral fear that I couldn't understand. L, I bit back a cry. Hey, it's me, it's Smith. Get out. She spoke through a sob. Her ponytail swung around when she twisted to the door. Please, I don't want to hurt you. She waved the knife manically and I raised my arms, my heart catapulting into my throat. You have 15 minutes. The voice drawled and Elle's expression hardened. I repeat, please lock all Geminis inside their rooms immediately and find a safe place. This warning will expire at 5am, 8 hours from now. A sudden bang outside set off my fight or flight, doors slamming and running footsteps. I found my eyes glued to the blade in my best friend's hand. They were serious about this. The dean really had turned a whole campus of students against one singular star sign. 
Al's frightened eyes found me and I lowered my arms. What are you going to stab me? I took a slow step back towards the door. Because I was born in May, I couldn't resist a laugh. You told me that you didn't care about the Zodiac. You said that all of this was BS, so why now? Another step and she squeaked. Do you want to fit in, Al? Is it like peer pressure? She didn't respond and that pissed me off even more. Al didn't know why she was afraid of me because her head had been filled with crap. I raised my arms in a mock surrender. Why are you looking at me like that? Al, I'm not going to hurt you. When have I ever? I didn't expect to cry, but my eyes were stinging. I could hear screaming Geminis being attacked and locked up. I risked a step back and her grip on the knife had changed, like she was ready to use it. You're brainwashed, I said slowly. The Dean wants you to be scared. She's crazy, Al, like delusional. She has some crazy vendetta against Geminis and she's punishing us. Al choked out a cry. Last month, she spoke through a sob. What if you got into my room? Al shook her head rapidly, squeezing her eyes shut. Just leave, she squeaked. I'm sorry, Smith. I'll explain, I promise, but you need to find someplace else. It can't be here. She smiled, but her lips were strained and her eyes were wide. When I moved to try and reassure her, she jumped back, like a deer caught in headlights. She was terrified of me. Lock yourself up, my friend said softly, and I realized that I had lost her. But don't hurt yourself, Al sniffled. They can climb through the windows and sense light. They follow it, so make sure to turn them off and stay down. Her expression darkened. Can you promise me something? I found myself nodding dizzily. Al squeezed her eyes shut. Don't look up. My gut twisted into tangled knots. What? Al's words had set off something inside me, but she was already dropping the knife and grabbing me gently and pushing me through the door. I was being shoved out into the hallway, my bags thrown in my face, when the alarms had started blaring, red lights swarming the hallways. I saw shadows darting in and out of rooms, others being shoved inside while retreating figures made for the elevators. A boy was violently dragged out by a girl and thrown on his butt. At that moment, I stopped seeing students, kids. I was seeing wild animals crawling backwards on their hands and knees, frightened eyes darting for a safe getaway. A girl ran into me, dropping onto her knees before catapulting into a sprint. She was caught by three guys who dragged her away, kicking and screaming. I had no choice. It was 7.50 when I found myself standing in front of the old building. Halfway across campus, the alarm still ringing in my ears. The dorm was more of a boarding house with maybe two or three floors. The night felt eerily still, a half moon poking from the clouds. There was something glued to the front of the door, a simple white sheet of paper. On it scrawled in permanent marker was, NO, in bold letters. The O was crossed, I had noticed, which was familiar. 
five minutes. The intercom screeched, and in my panic, I knocked three times. Hello? I banged again. Hey, can somebody let me in? I swallowed thickly. I'm a... My star sign tangled in my throat when there was a crash behind me and I twisted around. A group of students were dragging two others, bound and gagged, hauling them into a car trunk. With my stomach trying to projectile into my throat, I turned to knock again, finding my fist meeting something warm. There was a shadow standing in the doorway with warm golden light bleeding around him. I could barely see his face, only a mop of light reddish curls. He tugged the paper off the door and held it out. The handwriting stuck out. No means no, he said and moved to slam the door. I forced my heel in the way, blocking him. He tried to shut the door on my foot and in my panic, I shoved it back in his face. He didn't try again, but I made sure to not let my guard down. You told the dean about me, I hissed. I'm sorry, did we go back to sixth grade? He made a snorting noise. Well, look who's talking. What? The shadow paused before stepping out into the light. I glimpsed and narrowed eyes and freckles. I made a move to shove past him, but he stood stubbornly in the way. His eyes were shaded by a scuffed pair of Ray-Bans. Ah, yes, the traitor, he said, who was hiding in Sagittarius and didn't think that we would notice. He gestured behind him and something jingled. Looking closer, there was something metal attached to his wrist. And we turned your room into a panic room, by the way. He deadpanned. So like I said, the guy pointed to the stupid sign. No means no. His lips formed a spiteful smile and behind me, another crash. Something ice cold ran down my spine. I couldn't bring myself to turn to see more brutality. The guy had visibly stiffened up, nose flaring. He hiked his glasses up his nose, revealing eyes shadowed by an eerie glow slowly spreading across his pupil. His gaze followed mine. Another kid was being mercilessly dragged across the parking lot. When I turned back to the guy, his expression had darkened. He slid his glasses back into place with emphasis. Have fun locking yourself up, he said, saluting me with two fingers before stepping back. Another jingle and he flinched, and this time I saw it clearly. A rusted chain wrapped around his ankle and right wrist. The guy noticed me staring, lips curling into a skull. He stepped behind the door, clearly embarrassed. This is your two-minute warning. The intercom was still loud, even halfway across the grounds. Hearing the announcement, the kid gently kicked my foot out of the way, and I almost fell on my butt. Goodbye, was all that he said dryly, and he slammed the door a little too hard in my face. I could hear voices when I was shuffling back. I checked my phone. 7.58. Crap. Across campus, the warning lights were still flashing. Why did you do that? Another guy's voice hissed from behind the door. Because she's a traitor. Yeah, but she's stuck out there. A girl joined in. Aren't you being a little too harsh? Nope. I left them to argue, making it back onto campus. 7.59. Uh, bathroom. That was all that I could think of. 
I started toward the main building when movement flashed in the corner of my eye. I saw them pouring from campus illuminated in brilliant orange from the torches in their hands. Leo's. I recognized several faces from my class. They moved as one, a large group heading across campus toward the clearing in the woods. They wore pajamas, normal clothes like they were going to hang out. But something in the air and prickling across my skin told me different. There were exclusive clubs on campus, but this was a whole other level. I ducked, mapping a way to get on campus without being caught. If I could get to the door and make a clean break through the cafeteria, I could dive into the girls' bathroom next to the elevator. I dropped to my knees in an attempt to crawl when I saw her. The bright red hair was a giveaway. Her bobbing ponytail frenzied as she joined the others. L. Another frantic look at my phone. 802. I didn't expect her to see me. She was looking around frantically, unlike the others whose eyes were set forward. It looked like she was looking for a way out, staggering over uneven ground. And then her eyes found mine. Initially, Elle looked relieved, and then her gaze went to the sky, flicking back to me, her eyes widening. She hesitated before stumbling over to me, pulling something from her jeans pocket. It was a much sharper knife, the blade glinting under moonlight cast across the grounds. Tell me your name, she said in a squeak. I need to know it's you. I had half a mind to question her before I remembered the Gemini boy chained up. Smith, I'm, I'm Smith. Elle hesitated. She twisted around, scanning the night and turned back to me. Her frenzied eyes searched mine. What is my most embarrassing story? What? In two single strides, she was holding the knife to my throat, her hand trembling. The steel was cold and I had no doubt that she would impress deeper. Say it, Smith, word for word. Behind her, the Leos were gone with some stragglers left behind. I nodded slowly, trying to ignore the blade digging into my skin. This was my new normal. You, you had your period in your boyfriend's parents' new car, I whispered. You still have nightmares. Her expression crumbled with relief and she dropped the knife. How about mine? I urged her. Al surprised me with a quiet laugh. Oh, you barfed tacos all over your crush on your first date. She choked out, and he never talked to you again. I started to speak and Elle tugged off her jacket, wrapping it around my eyes. At first, I fought back before her hands and then her fingernails dug into the bare flesh of my arms. Her touch was reassuring, dragging up my arms and then grasping a hold of my shoulders. I told you not to look up. Her voice came out in an annoyed hiss. I didn't, but I bit back a cry when she dug her nails in further. What's happening? I'll explain later. How can you guys tell who are the Gemini? I whispered. I don't get it. Elle didn't respond for a moment. Your eyes, she whimpered. It's in your eyes. What do you mean by that? Shush, Elle muttered. Just stay quiet, okay? Elle pulled me to my feet and I staggered blindly trying to balance myself. I'll take you to a bathroom, she breathed, shoving me forward. But if you tell anybody that I helped you, 
I wound. I tripped over something, almost falling on my face. The further that we were getting, I could sense something. Light. It started as a pinprick behind my eyes before spreading. Bleeding light fraying through the material of Elle's jacket. There was one bright splodge of light and then another. And another. Speckled illuminations like glitter illuminating the night. Closer, they told me. I followed them almost giddily, watching them burn through Elle's jacket. When the sound of thundering footsteps sliced into me, I turned my head trying to sense where it was coming from. What's that? I didn't realize that I was laughing, until manic giggles spurted from my lips. It was like being high and my thoughts bleeding into cotton candy. Suddenly, all I wanted was to see the lights. They felt so far away and yet also like I could reach them, plucking them straight out of the sky. I laughed again, my body a puppet as I reached out and tried to catch them on my palm. I said, be quiet. Al whisper shrieked. I am. I was curious about the light. It was so bright and I was missing out on fully taking it in. I stumbled again, this time my footsteps tangled. I didn't hear the voice until it was in my head. A whisper telling me to pull away the blindfold. It was choking me, suffocating my thoughts and filling me with the taste of her. I saw it, just a glimpse, dancing across my vision. I had my fingers clawing into Elle's jacket, ready to rip it off when someone else did it for me. Leo, what are you doing out here? The voice was familiar, but it was being drowned out. By its light, its song. I'm locking her up, Elle said shakily. Darkness made way for light and I blinked rapidly. I could sense my head tipping back and then Elle's fingers in my hair, trying to shove my head down. Blinking rapidly, I saw the dean of the college in my best friend's pale face. And then I saw these stampede, suffocated in shadow, silhouettes passing me, ethereal light illuminating otherwise vacant eyes. The lights resembled stars themselves dancing through the night. It was the same light that was seeping into me. It felt cozy and warm, already ignited inside them. I could tell who they were from the attempt to lock themselves up. I glimpsed handcuffs around wrists, makeshift ropes still clinging to arms and ankles, duct tape over mouths. When my gaze followed the horde, I caught sight of a cuffed ankle, a stray chain trailing behind them. The guy who locked me out. He moved slowly like a zombie. His glasses were awkwardly placed on the top of his head, eyes drowned by that, that light. It was teasing me, seeping into me like honey. But it wasn't moonlight. I could glimpse the crescent glowing under the clouds. Geminis. They were bathed in it, a swimming glow that I wanted to dive into. All of them. Where were they going? Unlike the Leos, their expressions were blank as they staggered along akin to a crowd of zombies. I remember not being able to concentrate on the Geminis because something had a hold of me and it wasn't letting go. I felt it reach directly into the back of my head, phantom fingers taking me into its grasp. I didn't mean to look up, I tiptoed my head back, drinking in the sky above me in the night, 
that suddenly felt alive. The Gemini horde stopped suddenly head-stepping back, glowing eyes following suit. I blinked twice and Elle was already covering my eyes, and I wrenched her hands away so that I could see clearly. I could feel it sense it consuming me, filling my thoughts with a lulling fog. Smith! Elle's eyes found mine and she dropped to her knees. It was like she was scared of me. I remember her lips had formed the words in breathy sobs. Don't look. Before she could reach up, I blinked again, and this time it was a longer one. I started toward something. It was there, I just had to reach as high as I could, and then I would be able to touch it. Starry eyes surrounded me, but I don't remember being scared. Elle's cry rattled in my skull as I felt my body lurch on its own, driven by something else, a sentient thing inside me. I could feel my mind filling with fog. It told me to go to sleep, and I did. When I came to, it was no longer night. Artificial white light buzzing above me. The first thing that I felt was something wet oozing down my chin, and then cool porcelain pressed against my cheek. I was in a bathroom stall, my head stuck down a toilet bowl. But it was different to waking up hungover. I felt filthy. My body was aching, a striking pain rippling across the back of my head. When I lifted my neck slightly, a snapping sound made me jump, like my bones were popping back into place. My memory was gone and my thoughts were a whirlwind lost to the dark. I could still see Elle's face illuminated in that startling light. The shadowy horde around me, starry eyes burning into me. And then there was nothing. The familiar ice-cold grays of porcelain greeted me when I pried my eyes open. There was something in my stomach and I spat it out, expecting stale barf. What I wasn't expecting was a wet piece of flesh to splash down into the bowl. It took me several seconds to realize the toilet bowl that I had my head down was not empty. In the flickering light from the broken light fixture above me, I saw the glistening red first, spattered on the lid, and when I looked down on the floor too, it was staining my knees. And then I saw all of it. The bulgy, slimy red mess sticking from the bowl. I lurched back and something was stuck at the back of my throat. I reached into my mouth cringing and pulled out what looked like a mauled finger, skin to flesh. There was only spiky pieces of bone fragments clinging to shredded muscle. Something inhuman croaked from my lips and I slammed my hands over my mouth, my gut twisting. I looked up, red. I looked down, more red. Vivid and wet and recent. I was covered in dirt and grass stains, my legs bloodied and bruised, and half my hair ripped out. The walls around me were the same shade, a glistening, pooling, disgusting red, dripping and staining every surface. The lumpy red mass sticking from the toilet bowl suddenly looked less like a mass. The more that I was looking at it, blinking through blinding light. At some point I screamed, heaving up the rest wet globules of fat spilling from my mouth. There was a head in the toilet bowl stuck right under, like I had been trying to hide the evidence. The head didn't look like a head, 
half of its skull crushed, but I could still make out familiar features. Eyes still wide open, lips frozen in what looked like a scream. The rest of her had presumably been flushed, but I could still see pieces of her clinging to the rim of the toilet. L. Oh God, I killed my best friend. I'm still sitting here and I can't bring myself to move. Normal college life still goes on outside and I can't understand how. I ask this as a Gemini, preferably on campus, but this goes for all of you. Did any of you kill and eat somebody last night with no memory of doing so? I'm starting to think the Gemini constellation is something more than a group of stars after all. I think it's alive. I work at a small town McDonald's. My manager makes us follow a strange set of rules. Written by Horror Junkie 123. I'll have a number four meal with extra cheese, two Big Macs with a large fry, three apple pies, and a shamrock shake. Alright, Stan, your total comes out to 46.50. The land whale grunted approvingly as he shoved a greasy wad of crumpled bills into Gary's outstretched palm. Here's your change, I'll call your number when it's ready. Stan trundled away to await his late night snack as Gary and I prepared the food. Jeez, man, does he have a family waiting at home or something? I whispered as Gary shoveled fries into a red and yellow box. Blair, does that man look like he's got a wife and kids? Stan is one of our regulars. You'll see him pretty often if you stick with the night shift. I grimaced as I prepared the shake. Great, lucky me. Hey, it could be a lot worse. Honestly, Stan is the least of your worries. He said as a shudder rippled through his body. We processed the remainder of the order in silence. Gary and I then shuffled to the counter, each donning a full tray. A Stan orders up. Gary exclaimed as the boulder of a man darted at an alarming speed to retrieve his sodium-rich smorgasbord. He snatched the trays from us, hurriedly ambling back to his corner table. I watched in astonishment as the man inhaled his meal. Hey, could you help me sweep in the back? Best do it now before any more customers. Gary was interrupted by an obnoxiously loud alarm blaring from his pocket. Stan looked up at him, glowering at the unwelcome ringing. Nah, sorry, I gotta take this. He said, darting to the kitchen and out of view. He returned a moment later. All the color had drained from his face and he appeared sickly, like he had suddenly caught a nasty case of the flu. That was my Aunt Norma. She said that my parents were in a car wreck. Apparently my mom is in critical condition. He stared off into space, his brain slowly processing the tragic information that it had just received. Gary, I'm so sorry. Do you need to call someone? He snapped out of his trance. Tears brimming in the corners of his eyes. He quickly wiped them away. Um, no, I'll be fine. Okay, but with all due respect, what are you still doing here? Go be with your family, dude. I can handle closing up on my own. He locked eyes with me, a stern determination creeping over his countenance. 
Yeah, you're right, I need to go. Here, take my key to the restaurant. There's a list of rules in Dave's office. Go read them the first chance that you get. You need to follow them to a T. No matter how ridiculous they sound, got it? Yep, I'll take care of it, now go. I said as Gary handed me a small silver object. He sprinted out the front door, letting it slam shut behind him. I fashioned Gary's drive through headset below my hat and headed to the back to familiarize myself with the nighttime protocols. I laboriously pushed open the door to Dave's office. You would think that thing was made from solid gold with how heavy it was. I surveyed my surroundings, my eyes immediately falling to the life-sized portrait beaming back at me. Really, Dave? Even I'm not that self-absorbed. I muttered, continuing my search. I defaulted to the pockmarked bulletin board to my right. There they were, posted clear as day. I swiftly scanned over them. Rules for the night shift. Rule number one, you are allowed a seven-minute grace period and no exceptions. Rule number two, if a hooded figure knocks at the drive through window, do not answer it. Stay out of its direct line of sight and it will leave. Rule number three, if Stan claims that you forgot his pickles, offer him a free complimentary chocolate shake. If he refuses, lock yourself in the office and call Dave. Rule number four, no outside food or drink. Rule number five, if a blood-like substance begins seeping from under the grill, mop it up until it stops. No, it's not blood. Rule number six, an old woman in a shawl will come in at exactly ten minutes past one. Avoid looking at her for too long. She will not leave until you ask her where Tony is. Rule number seven, if a small child appears telling you that he's lost his mother, then ignore him. He does not have good intentions. Rule number eight. You are required to comply with the employee dress code. Speak to management if you need clarification on what is acceptable. Rule number nine. If you are alone and you feel the undeniable sensation of being watched, lock yourself in the office immediately and wait for it to dissipate. Rule number 10. The store closes at 2 a.m. Before you clock out, place two packages of raw burgers on the stove. Rule number 11. Always leave the restaurant by 2.37 a.m. The Hamburglar does not like company. Rule number 12. Failure to adhere to these rules will result in immediate termination. Do not hesitate to call Dave if you have any questions or concerns. Dave's phone number was hastily scrawled at the bottom of the page. I stared at the list, unsure of what to make of it. Was this some sort of cruel prank on the newbie? Maybe Gary was in on it. I resolved to wait and find out for myself, and I made my way back to the counter. Upon seeing me approach, Stan rapidly stood from his seat and sidled up to me. Um, can I help you with something? Yeah, you forgot my pickles. I mentally rolled my eyes. Gary hadn't been gone for ten minutes and the fun was already ramping up. Look, I watched my coworker make those. I know that he didn't. I began before rule number three crept into my head. 
I mean, I'm sorry. Can I offer you a free shake for the inconvenience? His four chins flapped as he fervently shook his head. No, I don't want any more food. There is another way that you can make it up to me, though. A malicious grin inched across his face. A blanket of fear sent adrenaline bursting through my veins. I'm 16, sir, if you really think. That's not what I meant, you dumb broad. I want a refund. What? No, you already ate it all. Fine, if you won't give me my money back, then I'll have to take it from you. The massive mound of flesh began waddling to meet me behind the counter. I fled to the back, praying that he wouldn't catch me. I glanced behind me as I struggled to push open the absurdly heavy office door. Stan was barreling toward me, sending shelves of product crashing to the ground. My heart thumped against my ribcage so hard that it hurt. I had just managed to slip through the door and slam it shut when he had reached it. There was a resounding thud. He pounded his ape-like fists against the sturdy metal frame, shouting obscenities at me all the while. I'll get you. You can't stay in there forever. And he was right. I instantly ripped the yellowing piece of paper from the board and punched in Dave's number. He picked up after an agonizing a long minute of waiting. Hello, this had better be good. I value my beauty sleep. And Dave, it's Stan. The free shake didn't work. I'm trapped in the office. Dave sighed. Alright, put it on speaker and hold your phone up to the door so that it can hear me. I obliged, clenching my cracked iPhone 7 with a vice grip and sticking it close to the rattling door. Stan, Stan, can you hear me? It's Dave. The room fell eerily silent. Oh yeah? What's up, Davey? Stan, are you harassing one of my employees again? I don't need to get Mrs. Barrett on the phone now, do I? No, no, please, I'll behave, I swear, please, just don't call her. His voice trembled as he spoke. I don't know, that's what you said the last time. I promise that I'll never bother her again. Come on, Davey, show a little compassion. Dave took a moment to respond. Alright, but you need to go home and you need to apologize to Mrs. Blake for scaring her. Blair, I interjected, facepalming myself. Alright, apologize to Blair and I'll let you off the hook. Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, sorry, Blaze, so, um, can I take you up on that free shake? No, Stan, no free shake tonight. I need you to leave. Dave said a stern finality in his statement. Without another word, Stan angrily tramped through the kitchen and out the front door. I didn't release my breath until I heard it shut from behind him. Uh, thanks, Dave. Anytime, kid. In my experience, threatening to call his mother is a decent deterrent for any overgrown man-baby. I chuckled, sensing the tension disperse. I'm gonna get back to bed now. Good luck tonight. And with that, he abruptly hung up. I sat for a moment, controlling my breathing in order to steady my palpitating heart before returning to my duties. I trudged into the kitchen and begrudgingly got to work, cleaning the mess of boxes and condiments that Stan had strewn throughout the area. I had just put the final ketchup bottle in its place when out of the corner of my eye I saw it. A figure was standing in the drive-thru window. 
I immediately tensed up, every muscle in my body freezing in place. It glared at me, yellow glowing eyes piercing the dark. It raised a gloved fist and knocked lightly on the thin glass. The sound freed me from my stupor. Rule number two. I dashed to the counter and crouched behind it, hugging my knees to my chest. Ice flooded my veins as the knocking grew louder. The window shook in its frame as the light knock soon escalated to rapid pounding. I squeezed my eyes shut, terrified at the notion that the slim barrier to the outside world wouldn't hold. The constant noise assaulted my eardrums, crashing against them like thunder during a storm. The knocking crescendoed into a fever pitch of resounding slams. Just when I thought that I might lose my sanity, it stopped. I glanced up in the midst of the unsettling silence that I found myself in. It was gone, as if the entity had never appeared in the first place. I gradually stood and took my time to get my bearings. I hesitantly peeked around the corner at the drive-thru. Nothing. Not so much as a scratch on the glass. I glanced down at my phone. 12.15am. Less than two hours to go. I could handle it right. I began sweeping like Gary was beginning to ask me to do prior to receiving his unfortunate news. I was thankful for a break in the action. I didn't know how much more that I could take. Apparently I could take a lot more as I came to find out. A couple of the college kids stumbled in trying to hide the fact that they were obviously stoned out of their minds and retrieved a pickup order. I watched as they clumsily staggered out the door. One of them held up politely for a small old lady. An old lady wearing a shawl. She didn't utter so much as a thank you beelining up to the register with purpose. I was exhausted up well past my normal operating hours so I had completely forgotten about the rules. Big mistake. The woman glowered up at me, face obscured from view. Her head covering was black as well as the rest of her outfit, not unlike a ninja that you would see in a movie. The aura that she radiated frightened me, but not enough to release me from my sleepy haze. Hello, can I help you? I yawned, lazily covering my mouth. The woman didn't move a muscle. She scowled at me, yellow reptilian eyes piercing my psyche and sending my heart into overdrive. Ma'am, would you like to order something? Nothing. The longer we continued our staring match, the more sedated that I felt, and not just due to the lack of sleep. She had some sort of strange pull over me. I nearly nodded off, my mind wandering back to the instructions. Before I passed out, I murmured, Where's Tony? Suddenly, I was released from my trance and the woman was nowhere to be found. It was like she had simply vanished into thin air. My eyes widened. That was close, too close. I trudged to the sink and splashed some cool water in my face and then poured myself a large cup of coffee. I knew that it would probably keep me up well past closing, but hey, if it helped me avoid another incident like that, I was all for it. I had just finished dumping the dustpan into the trash when I felt it. 
A peculiar sensation crept over me like bugs crawling on the back of my neck. I was being watched, but from where? I sensed it coming from the drive-thru. I whipped my head in its direction. Empty. I shifted to the dining area. No one was there. I grew lightheaded and panic began to surge through my system. A breeze swept past my ear and I swear that I could hear a soft, almost imperceptible voice whisper, Blair. I bolted to the office, slamming the door shut as quickly as I could. What was that? I paced around the office like a caged animal, anxiously waiting for something, anything to happen. After what felt like an eternity, it began to dissipate without incident. I sat there for a moment, contemplating if this was really the right career path for me. Was every night like this? I was snapped back to reality by static emanating from my headset. I ripped it off until the noise stopped. A bumbling male voice had crackled through it. Hey, um, is this place open? He slurred, obviously under the influence. Yeah, what do you want to order? I was beginning to lose my cool. Between all these strange occurrences and the inebriated customers, my patience was wearing thin. I'll have a filet of fish meal. Coming right up. I made my way back to the kitchen and began preparing his order. Who the heck comes to McDonald's at 1.30 in the morning for a freaking filet of fish? I grumbled purposefully dousing his sandwich and sauce. I served the man, hoping to be rid of him as soon as possible. Uh, thanks. Hey, is that a kid at the counter? I turned my head and sure enough, there he was. A mess of blonde tangles and deep blue eyes peered at me from the register. I sighed. Yeah, I'll take care of him. Have a good night. A child, unaccompanied in my restaurant... Just what I needed. I began to approach the counter when rule number seven blared in my mind like a tornado siren. I froze mid-stride. Just ignore him, Blair. It's almost two. You got this. I reassured myself, starting my closing duties early. That was easier said than done. The child began wailing, shrill high-pitched screams reverberating off the walls. He ran into the kitchen area, allowing me a full view of his tiny frame. The boy couldn't have been older than six. His Pac-Man t-shirt looked well outdated, and he was filthy, as if he hadn't showered in years. He began tugging on my shirt, begging for attention. Please help me, lady, I can't find my mommy, he cried, tears streaming down his rosy cheeks. He was relentlessly pulling at my clothing. That was it. I had reached my breaking point. If this child, monster, demon, or whatever he was planned on killing me, he could go ahead and put me out of my misery. I was done. Get out. Just screw off and leave me alone. He immediately quit sniffling and straightened up as if I had flipped a switch. Red tinged his striking pupils. Dread began sinking into my gut. A malicious grin blossomed across his lips. You made the right choice, he growled as he headed toward the exit. Weirdo kid. I mumbled, returning to cleaning. 
I finished up and waited around for two to hit, praying for a quiet, uneventful end to my first nightmare closing shift. Of course, my prayers went unanswered. I had a mere three minutes until I was supposed to clock out when I spotted it. A dark red, viscous liquid oozing from beneath the stove. Great, awesome, just what I needed. I filled up a mop bucket in the storage closet and began sopping up the mystery fluid. If it wasn't blood, you could have fooled me. A persistent copper taste attacked my tongue every time that I opened my mouth. I gagged, forcing vomit back down my throat. The stuff just wouldn't stop coming. On my third bucketful of sloshing crimson, I finally started gaining an upper hand. I mopped fervently as blisters erupted across my hands from the friction of the wooden handle. All the not blood had been disposed of. I breathed a sigh of relief, careful to avoid splashing myself as I dumped the last of it down the drain. I had done it. Take that, I win. I cheered as if I had just claimed a first prize at the Indy 500. My celebration was short-lived once I glanced down at my phone. 2.35 AM. I bolted to the freezer, scooping up a couple bags of frozen patties. I slashed them open as quickly as I could, hoping in vain that I would be able to make it out in time. I dumped their contents on the grill and then turned to toss the packaging in the trash. My heart plummeted into my gut. A man stood before me, his black dead eyes matched that of the small mask encompassing the top half of his face. Wispy red hair sprouted from his floppy hat. A matching tattered black and white striped uniform framed his features, accompanied by a dingy red tie dotted with images of burgers. He grinned at me, jagged rotten teeth sending a chill undulating through my entire body. He spoke, a rough, gravelly voice shattering the tense silence. Look, I know that you're new here, so I'll spare you this time. But if I ever catch you in here this late again, I won't think twice about increasing my calorie intake. His wicked smile exuded a malevolent hunger that still haunts my nightmares. A wet gray tongue wormed its way around his cracked and withered lips. I felt like a mouse about to be devoured by a rattlesnake. He scowled at me. What are you still doing here? Get out! I suddenly regained my mobility. I tore through the dining area and burst into the cool night air. The Hamburglu's soulless stare followed me into the vacant parking lot. I hurriedly locked him inside and raced to my car as a torrent of emotions flooded through me at once. Fear, anger, and confusion were all prominent on my desolate drive home. In the end, rage won out. I wasn't scheduled the next day, but I was determined to make that smug prick in charge at least give me some sort of explanation. I returned to the Golden Arches around four hours later, running on zero sleep and a whole pot of coffee. With fire in my eyes, I flung the door open and marched straight to Dave's office. Oh, yeah, it was great. Had his car repossessed and everything. Oh, hey Blitz, uh, yep, I... For the last freaking time, it's Blair. B-L-A-I-R. Not Blitzen, not Blaziken, not Blakely. Blair. Dave furrowed his brow, mouth slightly agape. 
Yeah, Jim, I'll have to get back to you. He ended the call and furiously pocketed his phone. Do you even know who that was? I mean, why the heck do you think you can just storm into my office like this? No, no, you listen to me, Davy boy. I just had the worst night of my life. Every weird thing that could have happened happened and you don't care one bit. I see you become acquainted with our more troublesome clientele. Yeah, I have, and I'm not dealing with that crap again. I quit. I hissed dramatically, slapping my head onto his polished cedarwood desk before turning to walk out the door. Oh, wait. 25 an hour. I stopped dead in my tracks. I reluctantly faced him. A sly, toothy grin was stamped on his greasy face. I mulled it over. That was almost double what I was currently making. I could have my college paid for in no time. Twenty-seven and you've got a deal. You drive a hard bargain, Mrs. Blair. I accept, he said extending his hand. I begrudgingly shook it, cringing as his sweaty palm gripped mine. I'm glad you were able to see reason. Welcome to the night crew. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.